Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. If there's one type of being in this universe that doesn't give a hoot whether or not you believe in them, it's monsters. Unlike gods, monsters require no worship, though they might enjoy it from time to time. They demand no sacrifice, though they do get hungry and rarely turn down a free meal. No, all that monsters need from us is a space in which to manifest, a shadowy corner that becomes for them a portal into our world. Nor does it make much difference whether that shadowy corner is a physical location or a conveniently neglected spot in your unconscious mind. Such details are, as it were, immaterial. Monsters are morphologically promiscuous, as happy to take the form of spirits or metaphors as they are to appear in the form of things or beasts. Like all things magical, monsters will adopt the most direct means of manifestation available to them. A space of manifestation for a monster amounts to a warm invitation. The way the monster sees it, that space exists because someone wanted it to show up. And show up it does. The term monster shares etymological roots with the French verb montrer, to show, to reveal. Once through the portal, the monster is content to remain in the shadows until the perfect opportunity to make a memorable appearance presents itself. And when that happens, you will say, as we always do, I don't believe in you. And the monster will reply, I don't care. Victoria Nelson's novel Neighbor George is a rare example of a monster story that meets its subject matter precisely on its own ground, that liminal zone between the physical and the mental, the literal and the metaphorical. Written before Nelson's magisterial 2001 study of modern supernaturalism, The Secret Life of Puppets, the novel amounts to proof of concept for its author's penetrating philosophical insights into that dimension of reality which the monster in her story calls the other state. Metaphysical affordances aside, though, Neighbor George is a gothic anti-romance, a surreal psychological horror, and a comedy of errors committed to the aesthetics of the grotesque. Phil and I had a blast discussing it, and we hope our conversation will inspire you to go out and read this amazing book. We also hope it'll inspire you to support Weird Studies by joining our Patreon. That is, if you haven't done so already, in which case I can only say thank you. As a freelancer, I'm not exaggerating when I say that your support helps me feed the monsters in my life, the youngest of whom will be turning 10 in a few weeks. And as it turns out, on August 14th, just a few days past my daughter's birthday, and two days before my own, Phil and I will be recording a live show at the Supernormal Festival in Oxfordshire, England, courtesy of Strange Attractor Press, who created the shadowy space for this physical manifestation. For more information on that, go to supernormalfestival.co.uk. We look forward to seeing some of you there. Okay, on with the show.
This was a great book. I'm so glad we're doing this. It was a great novel. You know, she wrote this book. At, well, Mark was telling us. Mark from Strange Attractor was telling us last week that she wrote this book way back in the 80s. She actually says this in the author's note at the end. But it never got published until now, until Strange Attractor decided to release it. And uh, I'm glad they did. What did you think? I liked it a lot. had a lot of fun reading it. Uh, I think that this is well-timed. So this was going to be released sometime in late July. Prime beach reading time. Right. And, you know, just as we have sometimes puzzled our heads about whether there is such a thing as weird comedy or something humorous that would fit within the ambit of this show, which I think the answer is yes, but might take a little while because a lot of, let's face it, a lot of the weird, the culture of the weird, if that's not a contradiction in terms, is very dour. And likewise, the culture of the weird seems somehow temperamentally opposed to the very idea of beach reading. But <laughs> if ever there was a beach read of the weird, I believe it would be Neighbor George, a book that's a lot of fun to read. It's got an interesting story, funny characters, uh, cracks right along, but it has that authentic frisson yeah. of the weird. It does. It's so true. And I mean, that's part and parcel of its grotesquerie. It's a grotesque character, which I think is something Victoria Nelson was was consciously working with. The grotesque is a big part of her nonfiction work as well, right? Right. And I think at one point in um, Secret Life of Puppets, her wonderful nonfiction book that was released long before this uh, novel came out, I think she quotes John Ruskin saying that the grotesque has two elements, one ludicrous, the other fearful. So there's an element mm. of the ludicrous, of the just absurd and mm by virtue of that funny and then that's also always mixed in with an element of dread or the uncanny Ooh, i have a perfect example of that from this book sure of the grotesquerie so very briefly and this is we're just doing our usual thing and just spoiling the shit out of this book so all mysteries are laid bare at the front end here so if you want to actually read the book and not have it spoiled for you go read it then come back we can try to avoid big time spoilers, maybe. We'll try. No, I'm not going to try. <laughs> I'm not going to put the slightest effort into avoiding spoilers. Oh, it's just so annoying trying to have a free range conversation and you're like walking on eggshells or dancing around well, things and yeah. so on. Sorry, you can have one or you can have the other. You can't have both. Well, I would say, I would argue that we just spare the, you know, the tragedy part. This is not a book that many people have read. No. So. No, I'm not sparing the tragedy part. How the fuck are we going to talk about this novel without talking about the tragedy? I ask you. Without talking about the the, the final truth? I think it's possible. Yeah. Well, I don't, none of my notes have to do with that, but if you need it, go for it. No. Uh, fuck, what was I going to say? Oh, yes. Okay, so it's about a young woman named Dovey who's staying in a kind of California beachside community. One of those places that was sort of a, a sleepy, I don't know, maybe a fishing village, kind of like next to some agricultural things back in the 40s and 50s. And then in the 60s, the place was flooded by hippies and poets and other undesirables. And then in the 70s, when this novel takes place, 
this novel works one of my favorite tropes, the detritus of the 60s. So it's now, you know, a little resort community, kind of tourist community, where the locals resent the tourists who come in and fill their streets with trendy nonsense, hippie bullshit. The main character here, Dovey, works in a coffee shop and is recovering from what is referred to as a tragedy, capital T tragedy. Her mother apparently drowned many years earlier, caught in a tidal bore, and her father, grief-stricken after this happens, drank himself into an early grave, eventually putting the coup de grace on himself by wrapping his car around a tree. So that is the capital T tragedy that kind of impels the book while remaining mostly offstage and unmentioned. But this is key because Dovey is living a life where she is just basically hiding out from herself. There's something in her that she can't express or even know about. She's utterly disconscious, of, to use a word that you coined, JF, mm. of this great and terrible truth within her. And in response to this state of immobility, this kind of frozen, contained, never quite enjoying yourself, never quite not enjoying yourself, just kind of existing sort of existence that Dovey is in, this guy named George shows up uh, sort of unexpectedly and moves into the house next door, hence the title. Now, it turns out that there's a good deal more to George than meets the eye. He has sort of bird-like qualities. Like when you're reading it for the first time, you might notice there's just an awful lot of birds in this novel, a lot mm -hmm. of references to birds. I don't know if you noticed this, JF, but like all of the surnames or all the yeah. names of people are like bird names. Dovey, the Finches. Yeah. 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 Peter Chook, an alcoholic poet who washes up and makes Dovey's life unpleasant for a while. Chook being an affectionate slang term for a chicken. Right. Anyway, a lot of birds in this novel. And George is kind of weirdly bird-like. He eats like a bird of prey, just gulping mouthfuls, swallowing it apparently without even tasting it. Right. Um, his eyes are sort of like hawk eyes, kind of gold-flecked and fixed round eyes that he has a, bore through He has you. an eagle nose. Yeah. The, his whole physical being seems to be kind of bird-like. And it turns out, yes, there's a reason for this. <laughs> he is a kind of hawk spirit from what is referred to as the other state, which we might be given to understand as kind of the imaginal or perhaps some kind of formal realm, uh, if we want to think in some Neoplatonic term, that kind of structures ours, of which our world is a projection or a hypostasis. In any event, he's not from round here. And it turns out that he's kind of a shapeshifter. He can take a kind of monstrous hawk form at times. And even when he's in his human form, an apparently handsome, barrel-chested, you know, like almost like a character from a romance novel. Right. Gothic romance novel. Right. He nevertheless seems to have not just sort of endearingly hawk-like characteristics, but kind of bizarre and grotesque ones. So one detail is like, you know, Dovey and George become lovers. And 
she can never quite experience sexual fulfillment with George. And we're given to understand she kind of can't experience sexual fulfillment with anybody. There's something in her that's kind of frozen or blocked. And in consequence, Dovey thinks of herself as being not a real woman, capable of, or perhaps even deserving of loving somebody. And the descriptions of their lovemaking are very unerotic and kind of creepy and grotesque. And there's this one detail that whenever George has an orgasm, he kind of, his whole body sort of flutters and he gives out a cooing sound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is both funny and, if, I mean, you know, you picture it while you're reading it and you're like, Ugh. yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little grotesque touch, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I've given kind of a capsule summary of the book. What would you add to it? Because I feel like, of course, I left a bunch of things out. Well, I mean, the novel plays on Dovey's relationship with George, which itself is kind of ensconced in the the community, right? So there's a lot of, uh, this is a poet, new age colony, you know, typical of that Northern Californian setting. And so there's a lot of really interesting encounters with all sorts of strange characters. It has a kind of almost Dickensian feel sometimes as you discover this world. So, but I think that, no, I think that does it. I mean, that's the conceit anyways. And Of course, the question is, well, why is neighbor George honed in on Dovey? The answer is that it has everything to do with the tragedy. It has everything to do with the fact that she somehow unconsciously summoned him into her life. The epigraph of the book, at the very beginning, there's a quote from William Blake, which kind of sets up the psychological framework of the book. It goes, each man is in his specter's power until the arrival of that hour when his humanity awake and toss the specter into the lake. And so this is a a novel about confronting the shadow, you know, confronting those things about oneself that one is unable to face. Indeed. Straight on. And so you need some oblique, i.e. imaginal way into the problem. And George becomes that. However, I want to stress this. It's too easy to just reduce the novel's contents to a kind of psychological allegory about trauma and facing your demons and all that. I think Victoria Nelson, and I was listening to an interview with her, and she says that she's an unabashed supernaturalist. She absolutely believes in the reality of the supernatural, in the reality of this other state, as she calls it in this novel, this other part of the world, this other half, the dark half of this world that we moderns ignore at our peril. She believes that it exists, that it interacts with our world. And so uh, the fact that George has so much resonance with Dovey's personal situation does not mean that George is simply a figment of Dovey's imagination. Right. As in, for example, Fight Club or any number of modern Hollywood movies that use this conceit and then at the end conveniently collapse the villain or the other into the main character. And this is the postmodern version of And it was all a dream as far as I'm concerned. I was just going to say, it's a version of that shit that I hate in Wizard of Oz where it was all a dream and they just take it back. All the weirdness is taken back. Exactly. Yeah. She's walking that fine line between the psychological and the real. And there's an easy out with this book. You can easily just say it was all in her head. But then, of course, you lose the point of the book, which is so clearly made in her nonfiction. 
And she has a little note at the end of this book where she makes it very clear that after she failed to get her novels published, because there were two novels, this one and another one, I'd love to read the other one, she decided to express the very same ideas through her nonfiction. Like that, yeah. that would be the way those ideas would get out. And I think they're important ideas. In fact, I'm kind of blown away by Secret Life of Puppets right now, which I'm reading. Yeah, I think that's going to have to be a separate show. Yeah. Because I started looking at it in preparation for this, and I'm like, man, I'm not just going to kind of be like, okay, this is going to be the show where we do all of Victoria Nelson's work. No, exactly. It's not going to be that. And hopefully maybe Victoria Nelson could join us for that show. But but That'd be cool. For now, I just want to say, I, I will be quoting a little bit from Secret Life of Puppets, at least I will now. In the first essay in that book, first chapter, which is called Grotto, an Opening. It's a fantastic essay where she talks about the grotesque and where it comes from and what it means for us moderns. And she's discussing the work of a critic named uh, Wendy Lesser. And she says that Lesser understands something that many modern critics ignore. She writes, Lesser intuitively senses precisely what most commentators fail to understand about allegory in the context of the pre-modern worldview it belongs to. That an element in one level of reality, however we define that level, does not stand for an element in another level. Under the element's original terms, both manifestations are to be regarded as equally real. That precondition of this literary form, however, has enormous implications that 20th century secular Westerners, cut off at the neck from a good portion of their own religio-philosophical tradition, were reluctant to explore. The greatest taboo among intellectuals of the century just behind us, in fact, proved to be none of the transgressions itemized by postmodern thinkers. It was, rather, the heresy of challenging a materialist worldview. And I love that because it gets to the, mm. the, my biggest hang-up with postmodern literature in general is the fact that it gestures at the supernatural while implicitly denying it. Yes. It wants to question every goddamn narrative, but it will not question the basic materialist conceit of yep. modern thought. That includes much magic realism, which I find is just a quaint way of getting your grandma's stories into your novel yeah. without actually taking them seriously. Yeah. So this is a big thing for her, that we need to recognize the reality of the supernatural outside of us, not just as an aspect of psychology. And I think that reading this book in that light makes it much more rewarding, at least it does for me. Oh, that's terrific, man. I mean, that's a great intervention because for one thing, it gives us tools to understand allegory in a much better way. Like early on, I remember one of the earlier conversations we had, like back in Ottawa, when I first met you, I remember you were talking about how much you hated allegory. And somewhere in there, we start talking about how like allegories can become weird. I think your feeling was that allegories are that's some normie shit. Well, modern allegories tend to be pretty... Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, yeah. that's that's kind of the intervention that we're making here. So like, if you're just sort of used to the terms under which we might normally encounter the idea of allegory, where it's like those terrible op-ed cartoons that you see in newspapers. Actually, the Onion AV Club has, a guy named Ward Sutton has done it for years, a really funny satire of them, where somehow, like every panel, you've got, a statue of liberty watching something happening and crying like <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean and statue of liberty represents like freedom and how freedom is being outraged by something the liberals are doing that's the right. joke of the strip right and you'll just like put a label on absolutely every element in a frame like god-fearing americans and yeah 
that's a label attached to a bag of Doritos or something. You know what I mean? Right, right, like, right. There's a one-to-one -one relation between each element yes. and what it represents, what it stands for. That's modern allegory. But what you're pointing out from Victoria Nelson's thought is she's saying like, yeah, but a pre-modern or we might just say a modern, that's a word that I encountered. I thought I invented it there for a second, but no, somebody else thought of it. Uh, neither pre nor post, but simply not modern. In other words, the viewpoint of almost everybody who has ever lived on this planet in the history of this planet, <laughs> the thing I keep coming back to is how extremely bizarre modernity itself is, yeah. different it is from other human ways of knowing. An a-modern way of approaching allegory, just as you said, or just as Victoria Nelson said, it's not a one-to-one -one relation where this means that, that each term, in this case, we could say that George is an allegory for like the darkness within Dovey that she she can't quite fathom. That would be one way of putting it. But then at the same time, like if that's where we stop, then the novel just becomes flat and boring. And it's just like a game where you just have to make sure you get the references right. And now right. I have a picture of psychological individuation. Yay. Yeah. But that's not it at all because George is both a projection from a kind of spirit world and also he is absolutely real as he points out repeatedly he, he has as as descartes would say he has extension right he's material he can kill people and does yeah or turns them into undead or to, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, another of my favorite tropes yeah. uh the magical enslavement of the mediocre poet peter chook yeah like that yeah but the thing is that just as he's real in both the other state and this world, likewise, his meaning is both a kind of allegorical meaning of a certain kind of psychological hang up or blockage, but he's also a hawk headed god. Like he's both, you know? And this is, you think about um, old world beliefs about things like vampires or the devil. And this is not an just an old world belief. If you talk to a modern demonologist or exorcist in a religious tradition that still practices exorcism, they'll tell you the same thing. It's that demons never go where they're not invited. For the vampire to come into your house, you must welcome him or her into the house. You must allow them to cross the threshold. So that's an allegorical idea. You might say, well, yeah, that's because Ultimately, when you encounter vampires or demons, you're encountering aspects of yourself. It's all happening inside you. So you've caused their appearance to happen unconsciously through your own psychological history or whatever. But there's also the fact that if the demon is an actual other and it needs access to your innards, to your, to your psyche, you have to let him in. It works both ways. It's not like the psychological explanation of that old idea that demons only go where they've been invited, that psychological explanation doesn't do away with what it is. This is another thing that she, she makes this point beautifully in a Secret Life of Puppets. And here she quotes Terry Castle, another female critic who I'm, I'm just discovering now. She wrote a book called The Female Thermometer, 18th Century Culture and the Invention of the Uncanny. And in a chapter called Spectral Politics, there's this passage which Nelson quotes in part. I'm going to read it because I think it works with what we're doing here. Quote, 
The problem with displacing the supernatural back into the realm of psychology is that it remains precisely that, only a displacement. The unearthliness, the charisma, the devastating noumenon of the supernatural is conserved. One cannot speak in the end, it seems to me, of a decline in magic in post-Enlightenment Western culture, only perhaps its relocation within the new empire of subjectivity itself. But the effect was to demonize the world of thought. We have yet to explore very deeply the social, intellectual, and existential implications of the act of demonization. Instead, and Nelson stops there, but I'll just quote the rest of the paragraph from uh, Castle's essay. Instead, we continue to speak, innocently perhaps, but also with subtle anxiety, of being haunted by our thoughts and pursued by ghosts inside our heads. We fear and legislate against the madness of the phantom world within. Until it is possible to speak of the ghost inhabiting, as it were, the mind of rationalism itself, this sense of being haunted is likely to remain, far more than any nervous fear of the police, the instinctive paranoia of modern life. So the idea is that you can say it's all inside, but if you don't, you're not changing anything. You can say, the, oh yeah, the vampire only comes in if you invite him, because the vampire exists only in your head. But you haven't changed the fact that there's a vampire, <laughs> you know? Right. And yeah. the psychologization of the supernatural does not do away with the supernatural. In fact, all it does in the end is demonize it. This demonization of the supernatural for Nelson is a necessary consequence of a move that was made during the Reformation in Western Europe. And that move often referred to as the secession of miracles, was the means by which the reformers, the Protestants, were able to deny miracles. They needed to deny the reality of miracles in order to deny the culture of miracle that existed in the Catholic Church. The fact that in the Catholic Church, it was still perfectly possible and there were there were technologies available to people who wanted to commune with angels or otherworldly beings. And of course, there's the daily miracle of the Eucharist, which the Protestants want to describe as sorcery. What the Protestants wanted to do was to turn every instance of the supernatural into an instance of demonic intrusion into our world. Mm. You couldn't have angels and God coming into the world because then you'd have, first of all, you'd have to listen to every crank who claims to have spoken to God. Secondly, you'd have to take those traditions that claim to have a direct conduit to the divine seriously. So what they did was basically, and she actually relates this anecdote where um, Sir Thomas Wise, a nobleman in the 16th century in England, encountered a walking spirit while traveling. And um, his deacon said that it was an, an angel that appeared to him. But then a, a theologian named Daniel Featley came in and declared that it must have been an evil spirit because it was well known, he said. The, the good spirits could no longer be expected to appear because of the secession of miracles. The last miracle that happened in 600 CE and such things were impossible. So the minute you encountered something supernatural, it had to be demonic. And so you have the negation of the supernatural, the absorption of the supernatural into the inner world of psychology, and then you have the concomitant demonization of the supernatural as such. And you've basically set the stage for the catastrophe of the last 400 years, which leads to Freud and all the paranoia uh, surrounding the psyche. I mean, each modern person is walking along the edge of a precipice. If you look to your right, you look at the outside world, you've got objects, you've got things going on, everything makes sense. You look to your left, it's a chasm, and that chasm is called mental illness or madness. And it comes on you like appendicitis. You never know when it sneaks up on you. We have no tools to deal with the psyche 
or at least to deal with it in a non-immature way. I'm exaggerating here, but I'm trying to make a point. It's like we've pushed everything under the rug and then pretended that it didn't exist on that account because it's because we don't see it. So there's a really strong thesis she's making in uh, Secret Life of Puppets, which really kind of helped me grasp what's going on in Neighbor George. What was that called? The supersession of miracles? The cessation of miracles. Okay. The cessation of miracles. So if I understand that correctly, the idea is that miracles once were possible, but they are no longer possible. Yeah. And there's like a specific time where you could say, yep, that was the last miracle. So like, that's kind of a narrative in which you say the world was once this way. It operated under different rules. And then somehow the operating system of reality was upgraded, everything changed, and now miracles are no longer possible. Obviously, the operating system thing is a little thing I threw in myself, but that at least I understand to be the basic Protestant attitude here. Mm -hmm. Am I more or less right? Yeah. I mean, God just withdrew. He does not intercede anymore because... Like Pentecost having come and gone, the Holy Spirit now being given to man, there is no reason anymore for miracles. That's the idea. Okay. This is an interesting thing. I used to think that theology was completely uninteresting. And I still think that a lot of theology is completely uninteresting. But it's one of those things where you realize that old theological wrangles are often the prehistory of ideas that we scholars take perfectly seriously and get in our own wrangles over. So I was, when I was listening to you say this, I was thinking about one way that I think particularly anthropologists have tried to wrestle with the weird 
And the thing that I alluded to earlier, the fact that we moderns are actually very, very different from other human beings in different places and times in human history, because we do deny the existence of spirits or spiritual forces. Our materialism is not historically unique, but the particular philosophical consequences we draw from it really is historically unique. And... You know, anthropologists do dash themselves on the rocks of the basic problem that apparently everybody else sees or experiences spiritual forces. Demons, ghosts, dryads, kobolds, fairies, sprites, you name it. Imps, yeah. Yeah. Um, Pixies, nixies, boggins, brownies. Fetches. Oh, let's get into this. Goblins. Yeah, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know you could just keep going. Um, <laughs> just pull out my monster manual here <laughs> from uh, Dungeons that, and Dragons. By the way, the monsters, that's the next place I'm going. Okay. Right now I'm thinking about the succession of miracles, but the next place I'm going is monsters. All of those entities that belong to the enchanted world, we don't believe them no more. So then if you're a historian or an anthropologist, say you're an anthropologist trying to make sense of some a-modern people, say the Songhe people of Africa. It's a marvelous work of anthropology that I want us to do sometime that deals with the Songhe. And the Songhe attitude towards sorcery and witchcraft. You know, an anthropologist is sort of caught on the horns of a dilemma here. Because you have to be able to sort of frame your findings within the terms of secular modernity, which, of course, is the operating system of the academy. As I've said many times on this show, we professors are sort of like the priests of this particular theological dispensation, the dispensation of the modern. So an anthropologist going over and hanging out with the Songhe and learning all about sorcery and witchcraft among them is not really going to be able to say, yeah, I saw these things happen as a result of sorcery. Right. You know, you don't want to, on the one hand, say, as a previous generation might have said, well, these are primitive folk who have not yet really learned the truth about the cosmos, that, you know, we are the only intelligent entities in it, and the imputation of consciousness to trees or groves or rivers or ghosts or whatever is a superstition destined to die out with the march of progress. You can't really quite say that shit anymore, right? No. But then if you don't say that, If you don't frame the magical beliefs of other peoples in this way, then what is your relationship to the truth content of people reporting experiences with sorcery and witchcraft? Well, what happens in effect is that you remain agnostic. You don't weigh in one way or the other, but you also don't say anything in your academic article that's going to spook the horses. Right. You're not going to talk about witchcraft as if that's a thing that actually exists and can hurt you. Uh, And so a number of years ago, somebody who was a reader of the blog that I used to write, Dial M for Musicology, left a comment telling me about an essay by a guy named Greg Anderson. And it's called Retrieving the Lost Worlds of the Past, the Case for an Ontological Turn. And this is an article on the Democratic Police of Ancient Athens. And 
Anderson wants to tell us that however familiar that topic might be to historians, we actually don't understand it at all because we always, we being academics, always tend to discount the aspect of like gods and spirits being important members of that polis. The right. point that Anderson makes is that immaterial entities had as much citizenship, they had as much importance in conceiving the polis as actual flesh and blood people. And he wants to ask, like, how can we say we truly understand this ancient idea of the polis if only people we consider to belong to it are like basically half of the people that the Greeks understood it to belong to? Right. We're seriously revising this Greek idea. We think that when we're talking about contemporary democratic forms of government, when we talk about the police, we think we know what we're talking about, but we really don't. I guess the point that I'm making is that although Anderson doesn't quite come out and say it, he sort of says, well, we have to understand that the ontological turn would be the ability of scholars to understand that statements made about witchcraft or magic or gods or daemons, that those don't just pertain to the level of phenomena. Well, they thought they saw these things. Maybe they saw a gust of wind and thought it was a ghost, blah, blah, blah. Right. Some kind of sanitizing phenomenology that would allow you to maintain that agnosticism. The ontological turn would be a turn towards a more robust statement saying, no, when the Greeks are talking about the polis as if it included a lot of immaterial beings... We have to understand that ontologically as a statement about a true state of affairs. The consequence of that is then the people are going to say, well, if this was true for the Greeks, then is it also true for us? And what people who associated themselves with this ontological turn ended up doing was basically coming up with reviving probably unconsciously, that Protestant move of the secession of miracles, where you say, ah, miracles were possible once, but they are possible no longer. Yeah. The ontological turners, I think, ended up saying basically, yeah, that was the ontology of the world for the Greeks, but ours is otherwise. Anyway, I find the historical resonance interesting. It is, but our own polis involves all kinds of immaterial entities. Banks, yeah, very true. Currencies, the economy, etc., which have a mind of their own and must be appeased just as gods do. Now, there's a boring way of taking this on board and saying, oh, well, all that means is that the Greeks personified abstract aspects of their society. No, no, you can just as well, if you're going to stick with the old allegorical mode of thinking, you could just as well say that we don't recognize the personal aspect of the immaterial entities that are part of our own polis. The constant baiting and switching that's involved in being modern is basically a way to convince ourselves that there is a difference. But in fact, as Bruno Latour said, we have never been modern. We've never yes. stopped believing in angels and demons. We yeah. never, ever did. Even literally, Nelson's argument in her two nonfiction books uh, Secret Life of Puppets and then Gothica is basically that all of our magical beliefs just went into genre fiction, you know, and that's where we live out this essential aspect of our existence as humans. 
we bracket it, but we're the ones who are bracketing stuff. The stuff's all out there already. You know, it's still there. She has a great way of, um, of describing science fiction in Secret Life of Puppets, which is close to how you defined it. You define science fiction as fantasy for people who need a reason. She writes, within the euphemistic construct of science fiction, the machine, as spaceship, time machine, transcender, and most recently computer, is the enabling conceit that gives us, as rationalists, permission to journey to the transcendental other world as a fantasy experience without having to acknowledge a direct contradiction of our worldview. Her point, however, is that the easy, pragmatic, agnostic takeaway here should be avoided. It's not that science fiction and fantasy allow us to continue believing we live in a mythical, enchanted world. It's that we live in a mythical, enchanted world. Science fiction and fantasy are our only means of accessing that part of the actual world at this point. That's why she wants mm. to bring back Platonism. From what I can understand, and I haven't finished the books, but her use of the term Platonism it means uh, a Platonist is someone who does not draw an ontological boundary between the inner and the outer. Whatever you find within also exists without. In other words, for a Platonist, for someone living in an enchanted cosmos, inside and outside are as relative as north and south. Yes, the words mean something. Yes, it means something that George is an aspect or a fragmented aspect, let's say, of Dovey's psyche in a sense. But that's a relative aspect of what George is. It's not the absolute aspect that allows us to reduce George to Dovey. Her argument, I think, is that genre fiction, what she calls the sub-zeitgeist, we call it the trash stratum, I think we're saying the same thing, is where that aspect of reality can manifest itself in our cultural discourse. Now, if we want to talk about personal experience, it's a whole other story. People continue to actually live in an enchanted universe. People continue to encounter actual ghosts, encounter actual spirits, demons, aliens, what have you. These things continue to happen and have continued unabated through the modern period. So in terms of actual personal direct experience, nothing has changed. We live in as enchanted a cosmos as we always have. What changes our vocabulary and the means by which we can communicate these things. And the fact that we can't communicate them now outside of a bunch of fictional frameworks means that we are in danger. We are in danger because we're not aware that our armies are led by Ares. We're not aware that our banks yeah. are led by Mercury, who is a total asshole when he's dealing with money. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, yeah that's what I'm getting from all this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this reminds me like a question we sometimes get from listeners is like, okay, so you guys talk about being down with the weird, but like, how do I do that? I'm not, I don't do drugs and I don't meditate. You know, I'm not a magician. I don't do all this crazy shit that seems like that's how you get in touch with the weird, right? You know, for that matter, I feel like I'm a good deal more staid than most people in this space. I'm a, a normie, just hiding out in the little tent I pitched in the weirdest fear, hoping nobody catches on. Um, <laughs> but how do I get weird? And I guess my answer is always sort of like you're soaking in it. Like you already are. You're already there. Yeah. I mean, apropos what you were just saying. Yeah. And I can actually give you a good example. This is where I was going before when I said, I want to talk about monsters. Right, right. Do you want to meet monsters? Do ya? I do. Please. Then go on Tinder. <laughs> and I, I'm not even joking because like, this is one of the things I loved about this novel, Neighbor George, is 
how, getting back to what you were saying before, demons always come when called, right? You don't get a vampire just showing up. Like, you have to invite the vampire in. That's how it is for everybody. The monsters in your life, the terrible soul-sucking monsters, the people who almost lose you your life, your sanity, your health, your money, those are monsters that you invite in. How do you invite them in? Swiping right on Tinder. Yeah. Dating. I mean, not that I've ever been on Tinder because I've been with the same person now for 28 years and I've forgotten much about the dating world. And much has come into being that didn't exist when we met our respective wives. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I suspect that like technical modifications aside that Tinder gives you a certain interface for the experience of meeting other people. The actual basic human experience of meeting other people is probably pretty much the same. Oh, yeah. And this novel is so full of details of how when you meet somebody and there's a flicker of attraction there. Yes, yes. You're looking at this person and you're looking for clues. And there's just this feeling that the person presents you with a mystery, with an enigma. Behind those eyes that you're looking into, eyes that perhaps you find very attractive, eyes flecked with gold, what are they thinking? What are they like? What are they really like? And then they do things. Like, for example, in this novel, we get tons of hints that George is not as he seems. Many hints of his avian nature, right? Not least of which his disturbing behavior during sex. But what do they mean? What's the total picture of which these are just details? Mm -hmm. And the thing is that you might find a wonderful person who you can trust and who will return that trust. Like you give your heart to this person and they will cherish and protect that heart. And I have been fortunate enough to have met such a person. But yeah. before I did, let me tell you, I met people who took that heart, that moment of trust, and fucking trampled all over it. I don't want to get into details, but like mm -hmm. I dated some profoundly unsuitable partners. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is my immaturity at the time. And stuff that I was looking for because of certain things in my head that I had no idea of. I mean, this is a part of the problem, right? We go looking for a mate when we are strangers to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you find somebody and that person represents some part of yourself you don't even understand. That might be why you're drawn to it. But you're basically falling in love with one of your own demons, you're projecting, right? To, to yeah. Use the, the... And think of that damage that someone like that can do if you let them in, if you invite them in. And like just those of you listening to this, think of your own track record of failed relationships, which is like pretty much everybody, right? Because like you are in a series of failed relationships until you're not. Somebody could cheat on you. So they could take all your money and leave in the middle of the night. Yeah. They could betray you in all kinds of awful ways, and you gave them that power. We have monsters in our lives. You don't need to read fucking H.P. Lovecraft to find monsters in your life. Not only that, but you can become a monster yourself in the wrong relationship. Indeed. This is classic depth psychology. From a union perspective, you meet someone. So Dovey meets George, her animus, 
which is all caught up in her shadow because of the tragedy and her, her image of the father and everything. It's important that George shows up as an older man, you know, his, his salt and pepper beard and all that. And she's very young. So there's a, it doesn't quite fit physically from his description, but I imagine that. What's the name of that actor slash country singer? He was in a bunch of movies in the 70s. I'm forgetting his name now. Oh, Chris Christopherson. Chris Christopherson, right. <laughs> right. That type of character. And what's interesting is this. When he first arrives, when she first sees him, so she knows someone's moved into the house. She doesn't know who yet. She's doing the dishes in the morning. This is how chapter four opens. Next morning, I looked up from the breakfast dishes and let out a yelp. A large male head teetered rakishly over the lower half of the kitchen Dutch door. Impossibly, the lips began to move. Hi there. The head lifted up as it uttered this greeting, and now I saw it belong to a handsome, black-haired man with a prominent nose and a black beard flecked with white who stood at the bottom of the kitchen steps. The point is that he shows up as a kind of doll robot yeah something uh something grotesque just a head right i mean the yeah. foundational gesture of the grotesque according to nelson is the famous orcus grotto in the gardens of bomarzo in italy you've seen it before it's like a the face of a demon carved into a rock and its mouth is a the entrance to a cave and the demon is orcus the etruscan god of the underworld and I was just reading up on it, Wikipedia this morning, and the Wikipedia article says, the fact that it's just a head makes it grotesque. A body part detached from its body appearing animated is one of the classic moves of the grotesque, right? And so right. he shows up as a kind of grotesquery, just a head looking. And the last time she sees George, this is after she's defeated him in the end, and she's gone back to the area to kind of soak it all in. Suddenly, George's head appears and just rolls out of the bushes and sits next to her. And she says, I screamed as much from outrage as from fear. And she writes, the eyes rolled, the teeth clicked, but the head said nothing. So again, we're in this kind of uh, automaton, grotesque, almost um, simulacrum of a human, right? A body part yeah. that's animated, but not conscious. Mm. I remember dating. And I remember when you're meeting someone on a blind date, or you just met someone and you've asked them out on a date and they say yes. So you suddenly you find yourself in this completely new context and that same person, maybe someone you worked with, somebody you met, whatever, comes in to the restaurant, sits down in front of you, and all of a sudden everything's different. She's not the person she was at work as a coworker who was attractive to you. And so you, you know, all of a sudden she's a potential mate and everything changes. And there are always moments in those encounters where the person you're sitting with is doing certain things that look strange to you, like the way they pick up their fork or the way that they have a slight twitch in their eye or the way they look outside at someone coming in. These little hints of the robotic, you're trying to piece the person together. So all their body parts are kind of independent. You're, you're oh, kind of piece them together in your head. And you're projecting, of course, your own anima, if you're a man or animus, if you're a woman, onto them. And there's this strange collage going or bricolage going on as this person is slowly taking shape in front of you in a way that I think if you pay attention to the experience, at least 
I'm speaking from my own experience, is actually quite grotesque. Not unpleasant necessarily, although sometimes it, it might be, but disconcerting and, like you said, exactly monstrous. Like <laughs> monstrous yeah. in the technical sense of the term. Mm. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. You know, you just got me thinking about one of the great bad boyfriends of literature, Teeter from Margaret Atwood's novel, The Edible Woman. Right. The funny thing about that is that Peter is based on my dad, James <laughs> yeah, that's Ford. That's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> so I should probably tell that story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my father and Margaret Atwood were engaged to be married at some point in the early 60s. Oh, and what a bombshell. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Okay, so I had a complicated relationship with my dad. There were quite a few years where we didn't talk at all, and then we got back in touch, and in the last eight years of his life, we were pretty close. But my dad did not like talking about his life, and there were many aspects of his life that remained shrouded in mystery to me. I was happy enough to have some kind of functional relationship with him, and so I didn't, I didn't push. I didn't press. And I had heard that like word on the street was that my dad had been dating Margaret Atwood, perhaps had indeed been engaged to her, but I didn't know if that was true. And I never asked my dad. And then he passed away unexpectedly. So a couple of months after he passed, it was Christmas time and I was shopping for gifts in a Borders bookstore in uptown Minneapolis. And there was a big display of a new critical biography of Margaret Atwood that had just been published. Can't remember the author's name now, and it's in the other room. I'm not going to run and get it. But I looked at this book and thought like, hey, if that was true about my dad knowing Margaret Atwood, I wonder if he's like in the index or something. So I took the book off the shelf and you know how books will often fall open where the glossy pages are sewn in. Mm -hmm. I opened the book up and the first thing I see is a, a photographic self-portrait of my dad. Wow. Because my dad was a photographer. This was his great passion in life. He was a philosophy professor by profession, but his great passion was photography. And that had always been his great passion since he was a boy. And this is relevant for the story. So here's this photographic self-portrait. It's all about, you know, it's a whole chapter about how they were together and they broke up. And knowing my dad, it would have been ugly. I'm sure it was an ugly breakup. You know, my dad had his problems with women. And in any event, this absolutely fucking blew my mind. But then as I was, uh, I, I felt like grabbing random people in the shop and being like, look at this shit. It's my dad. I just found all this shit out about my dad in a bookstore. Like yeah. discovering that, for example, after their breakup, Margaret Atwood memorialize their relationship by writing about it in her first novel, The Edible Woman. So in many ways, you could say that the experience of dating my dad, a monster that she let in and right. uh, doubtless repented that decision. But like, you know, that also was something that seemed to give her the first story that she wanted to tell right. in public. Right. And so I read about this. And then I march over to the fiction section and find edible woman, pull it off the shelf and start reading. And it's my dad. Like Peter is my dad, a kind of funhouse mirror version of him, mm -hmm. but very sharply and satirically represented. And the reason I'm going into this, other than that, it's kind of a funny story is that 
at the climax of this novel that the story is about a woman who is engaged to this guy, Peter, who in many ways is a strange, empty shell of a man, and perhaps in some ways a bit like George, mm-hmm. where George has outward characteristics like a certain kind of ingenuous quality and a kind of curiosity and enthusiasm about things. But Duffy's always sort of being like, yeah, but what's on the inside? There's nothing like, inside. Yeah. You know, two things that my dad was very enthusiastic about hunting. He was a crack shot and photography. And those two often were combined. He would go on trips up north with a rifle and a camera. And in the novel, the main character, her boyfriend, Peter's or fiance's Peter's enthusiasm for shooting cameras and shooting guns becomes kind of conflated. And the Mm. climax is a kind of phantasmagorical sequence where the protagonist feels herself hunted by Peter, but she imagines him basically as a big camera eye that's just constantly trying to find her. And we could look at this and think, oh, male gaze. Right. And doubtless, yeah, there's a big aspect of male gaze in that. But like, but it's also this monster that's just like a big camera eye that wants to possess her through this dark, glassy aperture that pursues her. Capture in photographic language. Yeah, what a great image of a monster. Just this glassy eye. Not that, as I recall, it's been a while since I've read it, that Atwood exactly characterizes it in that somewhat more specifically monstrous way. But that is the feeling of creeping fear and like, like sick anxiety that pervades the end of that book. It's definitely the protagonist running from a monstrous presence that happens to be my dad. think you understand any fiction, no matter how naturalist, without reading it as fantasy. I I mean, we've talked about this with Matt Carden, we've talked about this, but that's the moment where I can really get into naturalist fiction is when I find the madness or the fantasy in it. And the way you described it there is very, I haven't read Edible Woman, but it's very compelling. And again, going back to the allegory thing, if you want to just reduce the pursuing lens slash hunter at the end or whatever, the monster at the end, you want to just reduce that to the male gaze. I mean, you can make that. That's a real resonance. That's something that's going on. But it's also the fact that your dad was obsessed with hunting and and photography. Yeah. Those were just real connections outside of any 
fictionalizing on her part. She just found the resonance and put it in the book. He probably was, in a sense, taking a lot of photos and trying to capture her. And <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's just a fascinating anecdote. I've completely forgotten about that. You told me about this before. Just amazing. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, love is dangerous, you know, and dating is a hazardous endeavor. It's an extreme sport. And, uh, mm. you know, especially if you're out for finding a mate, like an actual person to have a relationship with, what a gamble, you know, what a wager you're making. For real. Because not only are you going to project, you must project. That's part of the process. Jung has a beautiful essay called Marriage as a Psychological Relationship, where he talks about long-term relationships in depth psychological terms, and it really is a kind of working it's a way for two people to work on themselves through one another. If it's done well, it can be very constructive and productive, but it's a labyrinth. It can lead you down all kinds of paths and corridors into really dangerous places, as we all know. I mean, most yeah, true. murders, I think, happen in the context of a love relationship or a sexual relationship. So uh, I don't know if that's true, most, but lots of them anyways. Well, I know that when a woman is murdered and the police are looking for suspects, the first fucking thing they do is zero in on the boyfriend or husband. Of course. Yeah, you encounter monsters when you date and you also potentially become a monster when you date. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the whole thing about like monsters within, obviously that's a part of this novel. Yeah. That there's something that Dovey some suspicion she has that there's a terrible crime that has happened that she's disconscious of. On some level, she knows what happened, but on another more conscious level, she's just going with the flow, doesn't want to rock the boat, doesn't want to make anybody uncomfortable, doesn't want to make it weird there. I suspect there's a lot of people who are going to read this and find a lot in common between themselves and Dovey, oh, that God, feeling yeah. of just always being kind of anesthetizing yourself to kind of get on with social existence. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And in a sense, George is one of her demons, you know, in a kind of allegorical sense, but like also, you know, absolutely literal, like she calls to him from the other state and he comes as yeah. bidden. And the puzzle she's faced with is how to get rid of him. Right. Because she, at a certain point, realizes, it's funny, the narrative is in many ways kind of a, a humorous inversion of a novel that she's reading. It's almost comic relief in the first half of the novel. This novel called The, the Manor of that, Rowena. Rowena Manor R or something. Rowena Manor, yeah. A, fic something, a fictional the, gothic romance that she's reading. Yeah, the something of Rowena Manor where right. it's like one of those... Angry, dashing lords, craggly, handsome, brow furrowed and darkened in rage, like one of those characters, which if you've ever read romantic fiction, and I've read a certain amount, not afraid to admit that, those kind of characters are fucking standard. And Victoria Nelson has a very funny line about how he has to appear to be a very bad man just before he is revealed to be a very good man. Yeah. And he only becomes the good man after the kiss. This is Beauty, right. Shades of Beauty and the Beast here, the show we did on Beauty and the Beast. Ah, when indeed. they kiss the bad man, but in order to be sexy enough to kiss, he has to be a bad man. <laughs> yes. Know? And so you have to immediately withdraw it. Like, he has to be a monster 
to be yeah. sexy. Exactly. And the moment that sexiness is locked down, we have to get rid of the monstrous parts, right? Right. And of course, real life ends up being a kind of weird mirror, or Dovey's real life ends up being a weird mirror of her book. She has this monstrous presence in her life who does not become benign once she kisses him. No. And now she has to figure out, okay, it's like how to affect the transformation that the novel just does for you, right? How to do that yourself. He makes it clear that she's already said yes to him. Right. And now he's here and she has to figure out how to get rid of him. He's like, well, you can't get rid of me. So like just hating him or wanting to kill him or destroy him or get rid of him, that won't work. She has a running list of tactics that don't work against this thing. She's like calling the police. She tries that doesn't work. Even psychologizing it doesn't work. Yeah. She's got, you know, everything that might work uh, has failed. So she, she, there's only one way and it's in, you know, there's only one way to get rid of them. And in fact, she never really gets rid of them. And that's the point. Yeah. It's that actually what happens is that she sees this grotesque head sort of snapping at her ankles, like impotent and unable to do anything, but nevertheless there and fucking creepy. And she realizes like, okay, so you can't hurt her anymore, but she's still stuck with it. Now this like reduced remnant, just this part, the yeah. head. Yeah. Mm, funny. Now that you mentioned it, that sort of substitution of just grotesque severed parts for holes is something of a running theme, isn't it? It is. Um, Big part of her, her work in general. I, I, I love her humor and I love her way of doing this. I mean, essentially Neighbor George is a Gothic novel. Yeah. But in a modern idiom with a strong helping of humor on the side. Yes. Which is great. But it does it without becoming too meta. It's not about gothic romances. It really is a gothic romance in the old sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I love about this novel is it doesn't put all of its best stuff in quotation marks so as to sanitize it and make it feel like something that an educated person can get away with reading. Ooh, I can entertain ideas of gods and monsters and and it's okay which i take you to be saying when you're bitching about magic realism it's a way of writing down your grandma's tales in your book without taking them really seriously yeah i I find magic realism in many not in all cases but and i haven't read everything of course but an impression i've had before in the past is that it's basically capitalizing it's a commodification of the old pre-modern world right and making it digestible and entertaining for it's not the case across the board, just want to say, and there are great magic, there are great writers who've been called magic realists. Ultimately, oh, like I think all John great- John Crowley, for example. Yeah, John Crowley, and even Marquez, I think, Robertson Davies. Everybody calls him magic realist, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was going, actually, though, I was yeah. going somewhere. Oh, I just sorry. wanted to get to the end of my thought. So, you know, in the end, what actually does the trick is when she's like standing over this head and she's sort of taunting it, she's pissed at it. And then she realizes, like, must suck to be this fucking head just in the desert. She feels sorry for it. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, with its sweaty, tangled hair matted on its face and it can't, like, get out of the sun. And she feels pity for it. She moves the hair away from its eyes. And then she just feels like, poor you, poor me, poor all of us. She feels this upwelling of like general compassion that includes this head, this grotesque head. 
and then it disappears. And that's the trick, right? But as one of the things that she writes down on her list, tricks don't work. Right. It's not a trick because you can't fake that shit to get to that place of compassion with your own monstrousness. Mm. That's not a trick. It's And it's not cognitive either. It's something that that's a point that George makes. Knowing it, like at one point she's like, ha, I know the thing that I've been repressing all this time. He's like, yeah, you know it. Right. But it's not in your body. It's, it's not just enough. in your yeah. head. Right. And that brings up I have a deep point that I don't know if you have time to get into it. Maybe we'd get to it in a future occasion. But like there's knowing and there's knowing. There's different levels of knowing. Mm -hmm. The level at which you can actually do something with your demons, with your monsters, is not an intellectual knowledge, but something deep and felt in the body, which, okay, little parenthesis here. Those of you who are listening to this episode and you were depressed, let's say you are depressed, but you say to yourself, therapy doesn't work on me because you think on some corner of your mind that you're too fucking smart to be head shrunk. Everything that any therapist could tell you, you already know yourself. Mm. And so what would even be the point to go into therapy? I know you're thinking this because that's what I thought when I used to think therapy is all very well for other people, but not for me. And the reason that that is an erroneous way of thinking is you could be talking to somebody, you are, you tower above them in terms of your intellectual knowledge. You might be just the biggest smarty pants on the face of the planet. And that doesn't matter because that kind of knowledge does not touch the shit that's wrong with you. It doesn't touch the stuff that you need to learn about yourself, to get right with yourself, to learn how to accept yourself. That shit is felt in the body. And you don't even have to be a human being to have that kind of knowledge. Dogs and cats and mice and snakes and I would like to think that even insects have that yeah. kind of knowledge. There's a saying in French, le plus long chemin est entre la tête et le cœur, which means the longest road is between the head and the heart. That's and good. so something can be in your head very clear, but sometimes that's precisely the fact that you've locked in on the idea of a complex, a psychological complex or a, a problem. It's exactly the fact that you know it that allows it to continue. <laughs> Yes. It's the license you're giving. It's your invitation to the demon. And so- like, oh, for, It's my good old complex. But for, for the idea to go down from the head into the heart, that's the work of therapy. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, in any event, sorry, this is a, a long way of getting around to a bit that delighted me because it was a neat little coincidence or synchronicity or something. So this is over on page 214. So by now- Dovey has figured out that George is some kind of monstrous hawk man who has killed at least a couple of people, and she's pretty sure he's going to kill her. She's actually wrong about that. He doesn't want to kill her, but he wants to possess her and take her with him back to the other state. Right. It's very funny. At one point, she's like, well, will I be able to think? Yeah. Because <laughs> she's one, yeah. one of those like highly intellectual people who's sort of stuck in her head and she can't think of anything. Yeah. She would rather do than just think about things. He assures her that she can think on the, in the other state. Yeah. She's figured out there's something very wrong with George. She's lost him for now. She's managed to shake him. She's back at her house and rather comically, a bunch of poets show up and start having a workshop in her house because she agreed to this ages ago. And by now we've completely forgotten about it. So she's sort of like 
the poetry <laughs> group is doing its thing and she's in a back room like just trying to figure out like what's the way out and she's like looking through a newspaper and she sees an advertisement for a demon workshop right in the personal section the small print said confront your demons empower your life weekend marathon conducted by a licensed therapist and this is part of kind of running humor about the whole detritus of the 60s thing all of the sort of 70s encounter groups that start springing up like mushrooms after a spring rain in california in the 70s all these people have been living in this little community for years who are just like this shit i'm tired of it um and something that Dovey herself thinks is funny and it doesn't take seriously but all of a sudden her eyes light on this demon workshop she's like oh shit, I have to find out about this. And so she calls the guy who's listed as the therapist who's running it. And she's like, what is your workshop? And he says, we visualize our problems, our demons, like they were a real separate person. He spoke slowly as if explaining car repair to a child. We use gestalt dialogue to confront them directly. We work through the issues, find out what our payoff is for having them. A little silence fell. I said, and then the demon goes away? Wariness entered his voice. We don't conceptualize the resolution quite like that. It's an intrapsychic process we're dealing with. A rich chuckle traveled over the line. I'm not licensed to perform excavations. By the way, one Exorcisms. thing I love about this. Exorcisms. One thing I love. Oh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> Exorcisms. Did excavations. I say excavations? Yeah, oh, which is funny. Apropos. Sort of apropos. One thing I want to say, though, is like in this little, I mean, this guy just shows up as a voice on the other end of a telephone line for a brief time, is the number of self-satisfied and self-amused men there are in this book. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Like Harrier, the poet, who is sort of a nightmare version of me if I had like, <laughs> if I really went to seed. And became like a, a kind of seedy, lecherous, pompous asshole. Yeah. It's so funny. There's this moment where Harrier is delivering a poetry reading and a baby starts to scream. And he's like, with practiced calm, he, he's like, what is the baby's name? And the baby's name's like, you know, Margaret or something. Yeah. And he's like, Margaret has blessed us. Right. And everybody's, ooh, everybody loves that. And then he starts and he reading. Looks benevolent. And the baby falls quiet. And you could just imagine the scene, right? Yeah. And by coincidence, the baby just stopped to take a breath and the guy just being like, yeah, I did that. And everybody buying into it. And then the baby starts screaming even louder. And this, and this time, time he, yeah. he just gives the mother a warning look and she retreats under his glare. And, <laughs> and so she like, leaves with the baby. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So we'll make a nice little play of how I am above this situation. I'm so welcoming of the chaos of existence. But really what he wants to do is read his poem, bask in the adulation of the audience, and hopefully get in bed with the 16-year-old girl he spies at the back of the room, right? Right, right. Yeah, dudes like this. This is the nightmare version of a certain kind of self-satisfied male academic that you find all over the place. Mm -hmm. And this book is stuffed with them. It is so full of masculine complacency. It's very funny. Yeah. In any event, as for the demon workshop, he points out how there's a processual dynamic and it's not about the outcome. You have to kind of let go of getting rid of the demon. You have to ask what the demon wants. You have to talk to it. You have to develop a relationship with it. And she's like, oh, okay. And so that's <laughs> that. 
but that actually is the answer. Yeah, he does That's give her the what answer. Actually, he gives her the answer. And the thing is, and this is the synchronicity. Just lately, I've been revisiting an essay, favorite essay of mine, M.C. Richards' essay, Wrestling with the Daemonic, which appeared in a collection of hers called The Crossing Point, which was published in the early... Uh, actually, the stuff was written in the early 70s. I think it might have been published right around the time, late 70s, right around the time of the events of this novel. The Wrestling with the Daemonic, the essay by M.C. Richards, is so on point right. with both the demon workshop, like right down to the detail that Wrestling with the Daemonic started off as the essay that Richards wrote for an encounter group that she ran in 1971 with a bunch of Quakers. And the workshop was Wrestling with the Daemonic. So like this piece of writing actually came from exactly the kind of workshop that is described and to some extent satirized in this book. Yeah. And it also is the perfect kind of non-fictional realization of that basic idea. Did you mm. get a chance to read that I did essay? not. No, I, my attention went elsewhere, unfortunately, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. We should, we, well, I don't have anything much more to say about that. Than, we can do something on it. I mean, I would like sooner or later to do something, but actually I'm going to read something. I'm going to read something from this essay. This is a provocation for our listeners. I love our listeners, but you know, our listeners, like all people, sometimes seem to have a kind of a Manichaean view, good stuff and bad stuff, stuff they like to hear in our show, stuff they don't like to hear in our show, stuff they think belongs, stuff they don't think belongs. And those opinions are valid and valuable. But at the same time, every now and then, I find in myself, but also sometimes I'll find this in something somebody says online or whatever, something that people hate, that they're keeping at bay, they think it doesn't belong in them, in their own personal ecology, or in this show, or in, or the, in the world. world. <laughs> and there's something that they won't admit is also a part of themselves. Because I hate to tell you, but everything you hate is a part of yourself in some way or other. Mm -hmm. If you hate Donald Trump, and I hate Donald Trump, I hate him. I bet I hate him more than you, and I don't even know who you are listening to this. I also recognize that that's to some extent because Donald Trump is part of me. And I don't just mean in a minimal sense, like because the motherfucker is inescapable and he put his fucking name on everything. Like, <laughs> there is some affinity there. Yep. Maybe it's because we're both Geminis. I don't know. Ah. But there's something, I can't just say that I have nothing whatsoever to do with Donald Trump. I have to get down with that. Haven't figured that out yet. But if we're talking about wrestling with your demons, well, so much of the time it ends up being kind of sanitized and you think like, oh, my anger. Well, are you really scared by your anger? Probably not. But discovering that you've got fucking Donald Trump living inside you, that might give you a pause, right? <laughs> and my feeling is that all of us have stuff that we're holding on to that we don't want to admit to ourselves. And those are demons that we have to deal with. And M.C. Richards has a provocation or a challenge to all such people that I'm going to read out loud. And I will leave that as a challenge or provocation for all of us, for everybody listening to this, including myself, as I say. It's an incomplete project. In our compulsion to think ourselves good, we rationalize and justify all our behavior, or we are self-accusing. Evil is unacceptable to us. Evil is the unacceptable. 
How do we come into dialogue or relationship of some kind with what we regard as unacceptable? This is the first step in wrestling. To stop calling things good or evil. Stop judging. Stop saying war is bad, violence is bad, lust is bad, anger, greed, gluttony, envy are bad. Stop saying they're good. Stop identifying with them. Stop accusing and justifying. Let be. Let some distance develop between oneself and these experiences. Some emptiness. Then, perhaps, the next step will be to make the relationship human and personal. War in me. Lust in me. Anger in me. What do they want? What are they saying? Do I want to hear what they're saying? Can I bear anxiety, hunger, pain? Can I bear uncertainty without an irritable reaching after fact and reason? A negative capability, as the English poet John Keats called it. I would like to ask you now to do a short exercise in unacceptability, to put our hands into the sea, to begin to wrestle. Please take this moment to make contact with yourself in some experience that seems unacceptable. Do something. Think something. Feel something. Shout something. Picture something shapeful, nasty, evil. Let's all close our eyes and do it. Okay, that's done. The devil is in our midst, part of our meeting for worship. I find that what you just read by M.C. Richards touches on one of the central themes of the book, which I guess is best kind of manifested in the phrase, the language of birds. If you look at the back of the book, before the little synopsis at the back, that line is just there in italics at the top. Do you know the language of the birds? And this is from a scene where Bill Grebe, another one of those bird-named <laughs> poets that uh, inhabit this strange place in Northern California, gives Dovey his theory, uh, his metaphysics, essentially. He says that the birds have a language. It's the language of, essentially, of man before the fall. The language before our fall into conceptual thought, which happened, and now I'm kind of paraphrasing and adding things, as a result of our eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, our fall into conceptual thinking is our fall into judgment, into categorical judgment, into the dichotomous mode of thinking that we need in order to conceptualize the world. And it can, you can never divorce, separate, as we said in the last show on Birhani's uh, essay, you can never separate conceptualism or conceptualization from judgment. There's always a judgment involved. So I think what M.C. Richards here is asking us to do is to stop judging, to stop imposing our concepts on things and allow things to, to reveal themselves to us. And the language that things speak when they do that is what I think Victoria Nelson in this book calls the language of birds, which, of course, as we know in this case, is the language of the demons, of the daimonic, the language of nature. Because let us not forget that in a platonic cosmos, Animals and nature are all part of the other world. 
You know, they're outside the polis. They are themselves spirits manifesting. If you read any medieval bestiary, you'll find that animals are basically embodiments of moral forces as much as they are actual organisms out there in nature. And so figuring out the language of the birds means giving up on this tendency to judge, this tendency that we have as humans, this power that we have as humans to put ourselves outside the fray of the world and judge it as though we stood outside of it. And to allow ourselves to become part of the world is the key to learning the language of the birds, but it requires us to give up on everything, to sacrifice our most cherished certainties, to dwell, as M.C. Richards says, in negative capability. In her book, The Secret Life of Puppets, Nelson draws a lot on Giordano Bruno. And Bruno, supposedly, she says, I haven't read the text she's referring to, quote, he maintained that gnosis, the mystical act of knowing God, and in the process of becoming God, is a Novidian transformation of the soul that comes through the metamorphosis into animal form that occurs during sleep and dreaming. She goes on a few pages later, she says, quote, it was Bruno who asserted that metamorphosis into an animal during meditation was the only way to transcend, to know God and reach the true level of spiritual enlightenment. So we must become animal. This is a term from Deleuze and Guattari. Becoming animal is the way out of our judgmental frames where we're constantly at each other's throats because everything reduces to one, either Pepsi or Coke, white bread or brown bread, white wine or red wine, etc. Black or white. But it's a dangerous, dangerous thing because in letting go of that capacity to judge, we become vulnerable. We are become open onto the other. The other of the capital O, the other of nature itself, the other of the other state, which is not just in some other dimension, but all around us right now. If only we were to retract our conceptual overlay, there it would be right now. As William Blake says, all things appear to the eye that sees infinite. And I just love this idea that the other world is not separate, that it's all around us waiting for us to acknowledge it. And in that moment where Dovey finally feels pity for what is left of George, chattering little head in the wilderness, like, as you said, the pity she feels isn't just for the head, but for all things. And in retracting her judgment in this kind of loving acceptance of all things, loving kindness, as the Buddhists call it, loving acceptance of all things as they are, she finally understands the language of the birds. There's a great song by a band called Blitz and Trapper, the song's called Fur, which I think kind of encapsulates a lot of this stuff. I just wanted to read a couple of stanzas and then that'll be the end of it for me. So the song goes, when I was only 17, I could hear the angels whispering. So I drove into the woods and wandered aimlessly about until I heard my mother shouting through the fog. It turned out to be the howling of a dog, or a wolf to be exact. The sound sends shivers down my back, and I was drawn into the pack, and before long, they allowed me to join in and sing their song. So from the cliffs and highest hills, we would gladly get our fill, howling endlessly and shrilly at the dawn. And I lost the taste for judging right from wrong, for my flesh had turned to fur, and my thoughts, they surely were, turned to instinct and obedience to God. If 
If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>